Okay, so I found that many of us fear that God's hiding some skeletons in the closet, right? And that hell is one of those. It can be this tough topic where I think the fear is if we were to really open up the closet doors, open up scripture and take a closer look, I think the fear is that we might find God's not truly good or worthy of our trust. And yet I found that's because we often have a caricature of what's actually going on in the biblical story. So this morning, I want to offer four paradigm shifts that I think can help us kind of reframe what's going on in the story and reclaim a healthier, biblical, historic, robust understanding. One where we see this topic arising because of the goodness of God, not in spite of it or in contradiction to it. That's the biggest end game for this morning. It's not uh, that we'd be the folks with all the right answers who can respond to any question. All It's that we would gain a greater confidence in the goodness of God that God is good through and through, all the way down in his very bones. So the first paradigm shift we want to look at has to do with the story, kind of going, what is the overarching story that hell fits into? And if you were to ask most folks today, how does hell work? I think they'd tell you something like this. Right now, here I'm on earth, walking along. One day I'm going to die. And when I die, God will either send me up to heaven, whoop, you know, or down to hell. Right? Now, this is a problematic story for a couple reasons, but one that I want to focus on right now is in this story, earth is now and heaven and hell are later. And heaven and hell have no relationship in the story to our present experience on earth, and earth has no relationship in this problematic story to our eternal destiny and future with God. And in this problematic story, heaven and hell become almost like these two co-equal competing counterparts, like one's the positive side of the battery, the other's the negative side of the battery, one's yin, the other's yang, Uh, these two co-equal counterparts that are competing for our eternal destiny. And the problem is this isn't the way that scripture talks about them. Here's what I mean. To use an example, we can go to Bible Gateway, like an online Bible, and uh, we're going to type into the search feature. I'm using NIV here. If we put in heaven, hell, and we hit search, it's going to show us how many times these two words appear together throughout the biblical story. And often when I ask folks to say like, I bet it's a couple dozen or maybe a few hundred. And so many are shocked to find that when we hit search, the actual answer is zero. There are no times in Scripture, in the biblical story, where heaven and hell appear together in the same verse, right? And that should be shocking to us because that's just the way we tend to talk about it today. We talk about, uh, do you know where you're going when you die, heaven or hell? Like, uh, you think, I grew up on Looney Tunes, and you had kind of a little angel with a halo on one side and a little devil with a pitchfork on the other, and we tend to think of them as these two co-equal competing counterparts. Now... Heaven shows up in Scripture, and hell shows up in Scripture, but it has a different way of framing their relationship. And heaven's counterpart is not hell, but it does have a counterpart in the biblical story. And we can use another version of this search to find out what it is. So if we kind of clear the search bar, and we put in heaven and earth, and when we hit search, we discover that this pair shows up uh, roughly 200 times in the biblical story. Heaven and earth, roughly 200 times, depending on which translation you're using, 195, 215, uh, depending on the translation, but roughly 200 times heaven and hell, uh, I mean, sorry, heaven and earth appear together like this thread that ties together the biblical narrative as a whole. And it's not like they're all clustered together in one part, like these are all in the Psalms or something. No, it starts in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation 
Heaven and earth are like a narrative thread that holds together the story as a whole. I would suggest to you that we get hell wrong because we get heaven and earth wrong. And if we reclaim this bigger biblical storyline of heaven and earth, the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make a lot more sense. So what is that story? Well, it has three parts. That in the Bible, we find that heaven and earth are created good by God. Then they're torn apart by the destructive power of sin. But that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. So in the first movement, heaven and earth are created good by God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, this is the opening introduction to the biblical story. And those words, heaven and earth, it's similar to our words for land and sky. It's talking about the ground beneath our feet and the air that we breathe above our head. Uh, Only a difference would be when we think of land and sky, we tend to think of just like raw, brute, material substance, right? Only in the biblical worldview, uh, the land and the sky are charged with the presence and the purposes of God, heaven and earth. And so God creates good heavens and a good earth, but then when we rebel, when we sin, when we uh, reject God, we unleash destruction into the fabric of God's good world. Now it impacts not only our souls, but our bodies break down and die. There's injustice and war and tragedy in the world, and thorns and thistles come up from the ground, the earth beneath our feet. The heaven and earth in the story have now been torn by sin. And the question becomes, what is God going to do about that situation? And uh, for some, this is where the caricature arises that, well, God's going to just kind of let it all burn and whisk us away and get us out up in heaven. But we find no. In the biblical story, that though heaven and earth have been torn by sin, they are destined for reconciliation. I love what Paul says in Colossians 1, talking about Jesus, that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the Savior who reconciles heaven and earth. Paul's saying that Jesus brings peace to the war that we've waged on heaven. And this is not peripheral to the gospel, it's actually central. The gospel may be more than this, but it's not less that at the cross, what God is doing in Christ is reconciling heaven and earth, redeeming creation to restore us to himself. I love when Jesus is uh, risen from the dead upon his resurrection, he appears before his disciples and he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't say all authority in heaven, so I'll see when you get there, right? He says all authority in heaven and on the earth. And why has the Father entrusted his Son with this authority? We read in Ephesians that God's purpose in it is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. This is a major theme to the gospel that the end game of God's purposes is actually to flood the earth with his glory, that all creation that currently groans under its bondage uh, to sin would actually find freedom. Romans 8 tells us in being liberated into the kingdom of God and the children of God. In Revelation, we read that, uh, man, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God. And the glory of God will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's end game is to reconcile heaven and earth. At the end of the biblical story in Revelation, 
uh, 21. We started in Genesis and we get to the end in Revelation 21. John says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And notice first the direction of movement. We're not going up from earth up to heaven. God is bringing heaven down to earth to reconcile creation. Also notice the wedding imagery. It's a bride dressed for her husband. The context of this is a wedding feast. And what do weddings celebrate? They celebrate union when the two become one. And this wedding is no different. God is bringing together heaven and earth, God and humanity to dwell together forever. So the hope of the gospel is that God is on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. And it's within this story, this narrative framework, that I think the smaller subtopic of hell starts to make more sense. Because to long for sunrise is by its very nature to long for the banishing of darkness. To hope for the healing of the body is implicitly to hope for the excising out of the disease. To pray with Jesus, God, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, is by its very nature to pray that all those forces and rebels and those who stand unrepentantly opposed to God's glorious kingdom would be pushed to the periphery where they can no longer hurt, destroy. We, one way we can say God's mission is to say he's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. I'd suggest another way we can say the exact same thing is to say that God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. Right? <laughs> God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. And one of the reasons that phrase is a little humorous is it actually works in both the problematic story and the gospel story. But it has two very different meanings in each, right? And so we can use it to kind of compare the two stories. If we first apply it to the problematic story, it means here, God is on a mission to get us the hell out of earth, right? There's sort of a sense that the world's going to hell in a handbasket, like things are just a mess, um, it's all going to burn, so get us, God, get us the heck out of Dodge. Whisk, beam me up, Scotty, like get me out of here, right? It leads to an escapist storyline. But the gospel, we find, in the gospel story, it is that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth. That we are the ones, not God, who have unleashed the destructive wildfire of sin, death, and hell into God's glorious good world. And it is because God is good that he is on a mission to reconcile and redeem. And so we see the power of hell alive and well and at work in our world today. We see it on massive systemic levels, things like sex trafficking, genocide, war, these wildfires that rage and tear our world apart. And we see it on very intimate personal levels, like pride and lust and rage and greed, things we all struggle with, the vices of the human heart. These are the sparks that set God's good world aflame. And we see, well, let's summarize the story. In this story, we find heaven and earth created good by God, and then when we sin and rebel, they're torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. But because God is good, he's coming to reconcile heaven and earth and to establish his kingdom forever. And finally here, notice the contrast, the character of God in these two stories. We can notice in the caricature, the problematic story, how you can start to see how God can look like he's got kind of a vindictive dark side. Clouds up above for the good folks, and I'm going to, you know, uh, kind of some sadistic vision for the bad folks. But in the gospel story, we see how it's driven by God's goodness through and through. 
It's because of God's goodness that he creates and brings life and existence to our world. It's because of God's goodness that he's patient with our sin and destruction and rebellion. And it is because God is good that he will not be patient forever, but he is ultimately coming to reconcile and restore and redeem and deal with unrepentant evil. Okay, so that's the first paradigm shift. Right? Now let's move to the second one, which would be, have to do with like hell's location. So when Jesus comes and he kicks the hell out of earth, the question becomes, where does it go, right? And I think for many people, the caricature would be that of the underground torture chamber, right? I remember maybe dating myself here, but when I was a kid, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was huge. And their bogus journey where they go down to hell and it's like, as they're, as they're going down, it's, ah, 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 for like a minute they're falling, you know, and just a continuous, and it's trying to shoot, it's way down deep underground, right? <laughs> but it may surprise you to know uh, that in the New Testament, hell's location is not underground. It's actually outside the city. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus' word for hell is Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna was an actual physical place located just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, known as the Valley of Hinnom. And this uh, place, so this was a sp- place you could pull up on Google Maps or whatever, right? If they had that back in the day. This is a place you could walk to. And so it wasn't uh, kind of in a vortex in a galaxy far, far away. It wasn't deep down in the bowels of the earth. Like this was a place that you could hike outside the city walls and go visit. Right? And <clears throat> on the one hand, I think it's good that we translate this word Gehenna into our English word hell. Because it means we don't have to run around speaking in foreign languages all the time, right? Like dads cut off in traffic, don't have to be like, Gehenna, yeah, Gehenna, what the Gehenna, right? <laughs> uh, when the Lakers win, you don't have to be like, Gehenna, yeah, right? Uh, like, it's good because there's, there's overlap with our language, right? So uh, there, there's overlap and similarity. But there's also a danger here, and that is that there could be some things, associations we have with our English word hell that Jesus doesn't necessarily have in mind when he's talking about Gehenna. And there could be some things Jesus is trying to communicate and say that we might miss. So it's helpful to ask, what was Gehenna? Where was Gehenna? Did it have a history? And it did. Actually had a deep, dark, and destructive history in the Old Testament. Its primary association was with child sacrifice. And so when you go back into the Old Testament, and uh, particularly in places like Kings and Chronicles, this was a place outside Jerusalem's city walls where the people would go, light the flames, and murder their children on the altar to foreign gods. And God cries out against this practice. I go, no, never did I command such a thing. Never would I even think or consider such a thing. And for the prophets, it becomes like a symbol, a signpost of how far gone things have become in the corruption of God's people. It becomes a symbol for their idolatry and their injustice. So when we think of Gehenna, I think these These are the two associations that should first come to mind, idolatry and injustice. So on idolatry, I like to think of Gehenna as like that cheap hotel on the outskirts of town where the affair takes place, right? Like, because if Jerusalem and the temple, if this is the place where God most intimately dwelt with his people, where they were to live in union with him and worship him and come at the festivals to encounter him, be with him, then leaving that place and going outside to Gehenna, to the Valley of Hinnom, to worship other gods is like that place that, that the, the, the spouse would go to to have the secretive affair. 
And God rightly gets angry going like, you're betraying me. Like, it's like God caught his, his, his wife in bed with someone else and is livid going like, I want to be with you, us and me. You're betraying our covenant. You're being unfaithful to our life together. And I know that those idols are going to lead you on a road of destruction that ultimately will be horrible for you. So the one association there, idolatry, the other uh, is injustice. This was a place where Israel murdered her children. And because she was married to God, these were his kids too. So God rightly gets angry. You can imagine, I can't imagine, like coming home and finding that your spouse had murdered your kids. Like you would just be heartbroken and angry and livid, and rightly so. And God is angry about the injustice that marks Gehenna. Now, when we think of idolatry and injustice today, we tend to think of those as like two very separate different things. But in the Bible, they're connected. That when we uh, worship idols, when we take God and we replace him with something else, whether that's money or sex or power or entertainment, whatever that thing may be, and we make it ultimate in our lives, that unleashes destruction in our families, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our own lives. Idolatry leads to injustice. Betrayal of God leads to unraveling in his world. We see this in uh, Jeremiah where he's talking about Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. And God is speaking to Jeremiah. God says, for they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. So he's talking about idolatry there, foreign gods. And he goes on in the very next breath to say, they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. Injustice. The idolatry leads to the blood of the innocent justice. So what can we learn from this history about the nature of hell? Well, I'd say a few things. First, uh, that yes, uh, hell is a cruel place. Like Gehenna was a cruel place, but it was cruel not because God was cruel, but because of the idols that there hold sway. Right? Like yes, uh, the imagery was a place uh, with imagery associated with fire, but the flames were lit by human hands. And to blame the cruelty of Gehenna on God would be kind of like, uh, like someone who is an alcoholic blaming sobriety for the pain of their affliction, right? Sobriety is not the thing, uh, the thing inflicting pain. Sobriety is the cure the alcoholic needs. And similarly, God is the cure that Gehenna needs, and the cruelty of Gehenna arises from the rejection of and rebellion against the goodness of God and leads to the characterization of Gehenna as a cruel place. Okay, well, so we've seen that Hell's location is not underground. It's actually outside the city. Um, next, uh, let's talk about its purpose. This would be the third paradigm shift. Uh, is its purpose torture? It's just no. Um, it's actually, so let me go back. The, the purpose is not torture, but protection. Let me explain what I mean. For the prophets, they held out hope that because God was good, he was going to come back to Jerusalem, back to his temple. He was going to return as king, and he was going to establish his kingdom. And when he did, he would kick the rebellion back outside the city walls into Gehenna. It's like kicking the mess back to where it came from. And the imagery here is one of God protecting the goodness and flourishing of his kingdom by containing those powers that are set against his good purposes. Right? And when we 
see here like the, the imagery, so the imagery here is not so much like good folks go up and bad folks go down, right? As it's rather center and periphery. It's not so much up, down as center and periphery. It's not so much good folks go up, bad folks go down, as it is God coming to reestablish his kingdom from the center of the world and to push all those forces that would harm and destroy outside to the periphery. And this starts to sound a lot like the structure, the narrative structure of our fairy tales. Right? Uh, speaks to, I think, some of the deepest longings of the human heart in the stories that we tell ourselves. And I like to think of this as the fairy tale is real. That fairy tales it can speak to some of our deepest longings and aspirations and hopes of the human heart. And one uh, recurring theme in many fairy tales is this hope for the good king returning to his kingdom and dealing with evil and injustice. So when my daughter was younger, we were reading through uh, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. And this struck me once when we got to, it was Voyage of the John Treader was the book. And in the book, there's this island kingdom. And for a long time, the, the prince, the king has been away. And so the island kingdom has been held under the tyrannical power of this corrupt governor, Gumpas. And uh, while Gumpas has been in, in control and in charge, uh, many people have kind of aligned themselves with the corrupt order of the day and are seeking to just kind of live high off the hog and get whatever they can out of it. And the land is marked by slavery and exploitation and all these horrible things. Uh, but there are some who live there and are aligning their lives in the hope that the king is coming back and they're waiting and preparing for his return. And eventually when uh, the king does return, uh, there's, he kind of comes subversively and this movement forms around him and then he eventually ends up taking the castle and then the word spreads. And when the word spreads, the king is back. He's returned to the capital. He's in the capital, in the, in the castle. When the word spreads for the most part, the bad guys flee and run. They realize the jig is up, our day is done, and they head for the hills, right? But there are some who try and stay. So Gumpas, the corrupt governor, he tries to work out a deal with the king and uh, says, hey, essentially like, well, how about let's work out a deal? And you, you know, I'll, I'll cut you in on the profit. Let me kind of run my mafia racket over here. And you can still be the good guy, the public face, but let us just kind of keep doing our stuff here. And as I'm reading that, my daughter, who's like five at the time, everything in her goes, no, like don't compromise with the bad powers. Like everything in her wants him to not compromise with evil. And fortunately, he doesn't. His response is, uh, the only remaining question, Gumpas, is whether you and the rest of the rabble will leave without a flogging or with one. You may choose which you prefer, right? So he's got this picture of either, dude, you're going to get out or I'm going to have to boot you out. Not because I'm a jerk. It's actually because I'm good and because you've aligned yourself against the goodness of my kingdom. And if you refuse to bend the knee and align your lives with the goodness that I've come to bring, then you cannot remain, right? But the motive, it's not one of cruelty, it's one of protection, protecting the flourishing and goodness of the kingdom by containing outside the destructive power of evil. We see this in other classic fairy tales. I think of Star Wars, and at the end, we're all stoked, you know, like uh, when Return of the Jedi, I remember being a kid and seeing, um, dude, the, you know, the big party with the Ewoks and people are dancing and Princess Leia and Han Solo, everything's great. You know, we're all stuck and we're not bummed that like the Death Star blew up and the stormtroopers are slinking off into the distance where they can no longer hurt. 
Or even other types of fairy tales like uh, Cinderella. We love it at the end when Cinderella and the prince get together and the shoe fits and yay. And we're not bummed that the three wicked stepsisters who've been fighting against that ending the whole time go slinking off to the periphery. Throughout the story, they've been at the center where they've wielded authority and power to hurt and harm and destroy. And now they're pushed to the periphery where they can no longer do that. We see this theme in, uh, well, so the, the purpose here is not torture, but protection. And we see this theme in uh, a number of places. One of my favorites is in Isaiah. Oh, I'm sorry, let me skip this for a second. In Isaiah 11, where God says, um, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Now, the holy mountain was Mount Zion or Jerusalem. Right? And the context is God's going, right now, there's, things are like chaos, and there's all sorts of bad things going on. But on that day, when I establish my kingdom, they will no longer be able to hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, on Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And he goes on to say, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the picture here is one of God, God's hope, God's liberation of his capital of Jerusalem leads to Uh, it's hope for the world, for the earth as a whole, being flooded and filled with the glory of God. And God protects his kingdom from those forces that currently harm and destroy. I also love in Zechariah 2, where God says, "Um, on that day, again, when I establish my kingdom, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. I love that picture. God's like, you tear down the walls to my city. Like, let's just tear down the walls to my home because I want as many, anyone and everyone who would come and be a part of this party to come and feast and celebrate. But if you were an ancient Israelite back in the day, you would have been like, okay, God, that's great. You want to throw this big party and have everyone come in and all, but there's a problem. Like, the walls are kind of what keep the bad guys out, right? Like, people are going to attack us, so we're kind of defenseless now. What are we going to do? And God goes on anticipating this objection to explain. He says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be its glory within. God's kingdom is not protected by tanks and jet fighters and AK-47s. It's protected by his very presence. And it's interesting to me that God's presence is experienced within the kingdom as redemptive, powerful glory, and experienced outside the kingdom as protective fire. God's purpose in this is protection, the protection of the goodness of his kingdom and its flourishing by the containment of unrepentant sin. Now, if we go back a minute, uh, I think of this, too, this theme of God liberating the capital. And this speaks to, I think, some of the deepest, um, you could say on the fairy tale thing, like, Man, okay, Josh, that's cool. Fairy tales, those are kind of fluffy kids' stories, but does this actually speak into hope that meets kind of the raw blood and dirt of our actual history? I think it does. Uh, One way is this theme of liberating the capital. It's a common theme in war stories, war history. Uh, This hope for the liberation of the capital from tyranny. So to give an example, I spent a lot of time in Cambodia working with... uh, international partners there. 
And uh, while they're amazing Cambodian leaders, and many of them recount uh, living through the Khmer Rouge genocide that happened in the 70s. It's a horrific time where an estimated 20, 25% of the population was killed. And they talk about during that era, just longing and hoping, would someone come and kick the Khmer Rouge out of power? Would someone come and liberate the capital of Phnom Penh in order to set the country free? Well, eventually it happened. Uh, The Vietnamese invaded, they liberated Phnom Penh, and and afterwards, the question became, well, what do we do with the Khmer Rouge? And the Khmer Rouge said, hey, instead of hunting us down and killing us, would you allow us, we've been stripped of our power, of our authority, of our weapons, would you allow us to kind of go up to the borderlands, kind of the rural, rough area, and just eke out an existence up there? And as an act of mercy, the new government said, okay, rather than hunting you down and taking you out, we're going to allow you to kind of be contained up in that area and live out your lives there. And it was an act of mercy not to annihilate them, but to give them space, uh, space to live, right? And yet, the way that they had aligned their lives was set against what the future of the country needed. And when you talk to folks who lived through that, era, even if they weren't living in the capital of Phnom Penh, when they heard that Phnom Penh had been liberated, they were filled with joy because they knew the liberation of the capital meant hope for the country as a whole. And similarly, in the biblical story, Jerusalem is depicted and Israel is depicted as the capital of not only Israel, but of the world, right? Jerusalem, it means the shalom, the city of peace, the shalom of God. And I love the end of Revelation where uh, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, it's now, its dimensions are crazy. It's like 1,200 miles wide by 1,200 miles long by 1,200 miles high. And it's like, it's not a city, it's like a continent, right? And in the ancient world, it would have felt like about the size of the known world of the day. And whether those are literal, they're probably metaphorical dimensions just to speak to how massive, like God's massive city is. But there's this picture now that the coming of God's kingdom is hope for the world. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see as God's kingdom, his city comes, he protects it, and the unrepentant power of evil is outside. Kept outside. So we find here that God's purpose is not torture, but protection by containment of evil. And this brings us to our fourth and final paradigm shift. Uh, Is it a chamber? Nope. I couldn't come up with a good alternative word. (laughs) The opposite of a chamber. (laughs) So just no, but here's what I mean. I think in the caricature that many people have, uh, it was a sense that, um, you know, people are repentant. Like, God, I'm so sorry. Please, I'll do anything. I just want to be with you. God, I I, I lay down my idols. Anything, God, I just want to be with you. And And the caricature God is like, ah, too bad. I don't want to be with you. Too late. I'm kind of backing away. And it's the strange reversal of the gospel where we're the ones pursuing God and God is the one unwilling to be found. And yet the gospel works in the other direction. Like We see throughout biblical story, God is the one coming after us, chasing down and pursuing our world. And the problem There's some powerful language in the biblical story that one of the problems is the hardening of our heart. That if we reject God, if we resist his advances, if we turn against him, if we give him the cold shoulder, 
There's this picture that we become hardened, almost like encased in our own rebellion and our own corrupted affections and desires that want life without God. The question we the question becomes one of dude are we willing to receive the God who has come for us in Christ and the good news of the gospel is that as we stand before Jesus he's not going hey are you good enough to get into my kingdom he's asking rather will you let me heal you like the gospel turns the question back on us and is do we want to be healed do we want to be enter into union with Christ and be made fit for his kingdom and some people, uh, you know, I, you, you could kind of hear this and go, man, are you saying like hell's not really that bad? Like it's just, and no, hear me right. I'm not trying to minimize in any way. I love something that um, I heard Tim Keller say once where he was asked the effect of like, all right, so the flames of hell, are they metaphorical or are they real, literal? What do you think? And he said, oh, I think they're metaphorical, basically, right? And he said, people will usually go, oh, whew, you know, and kind of wipe the sweat off their brow. That was, that was close. And then I'll say, uh, I think they're a metaphor for something much worse. <laughs> and then it's like, ah. You know. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the, the piece here is going like, it's, it's not to try and minimize it, uh, but it is trying to properly locate it and go, dude, do we see the gravity and the weight if we reject God, if we turn against him, if we seek an existence where we want uh, independence over communion with God, where we want autonomy over worship, where we prefer a life ordered under our own agendas and our own things rather than with the creator and king of the universe. Like, that leads to the, a destruction, a destruction in our existence that should scare us. But it is to properly locate. It's not because God's a jerk. It's because of the horrific nature of sin And it serves to magnify the goodness of a God who would be patient with us and who would pursue us and would even create space for us if we say we don't want him. And I think uh, for our our, our final kind of landing the plane here, um, you could go, okay, that's better than the caricature, but really, is that still the best option? And my take would be if we tell Jesus we don't want him, I think this is the best, most merciful option there is. Uh, Let me explain what I mean. If you think of the gospel as like a wedding proposal, which the gospel does, it's presented as where Christ at the cross lays down his life for us as his bride, invites us into union with him. I'll take all of your sin, your suffering, your shame. I give you my goodness, my righteousness, my holiness, myself. Let's enter into union together, life together. Come and be one with me and through me within the very life of God. If we say no to that wedding proposal, as far as I can tell, there's only four options. Uh, The first option is for God to say, hey, marry me and bring in your old lovers, right? Uh, This is saying, hey, why can't God just ignore unrepentant sin? Like just say, hey, marry me, but come on and bring uh, the evil, bring the junk, bring the stuff before. And the problem with this is that it makes a farce of redemption, right? Like, if babies are still crying and nations are still warring and we still see all the same junk on the evening news that we see every day today, then creation has not truly been redeemed. This is like going, hey, bring the stuff from Gehenna back inside the city walls. Right? 
And it's because of God's goodness that, you know, he wants us. He wants all of us. He doesn't want to share us with sin, right? Because he values and cares for us that much. So this, to me, is not a more merciful option. Second option is for God to say, hey, marry me or I'll kill you, right? <laughs> and this is, I think, a metaphor for, you know, uh, what's sometimes been called annihilation. Like, okay, God, uh, don't ignore unrepentant sin, but why can't you just annihilate the unrepentant sinner? And I think often this is responding to the caricature of kind of a, the torture chamber and going, man, can't you just sort of put them out of their misery? Uh, but as we've seen, that's, that's a caricature. And a few other problems with this. Um, one is I think it minimizes the scope and power of Christ's resurrection. That Jesus has conquered the grave. He has defeated death. And we can no longer hide in our grave from the presence of God. The question is now, how do we stand before the, God, before the God who raises us from the grave. And so I think this can minimize the scope of Christ's resurrection. A second concern here would be, this is really just a bad way to propose, right? Like, if any of you are thinking of popping the question today, and this is the way you're planning to do it, please come talk with me or Casey or one of the pastors. We'll call the police. I don't know, like, right? <laughs> like, holding the threat of, you know, of, of, of cruelty or of killing someone over them is it minimizes the beauty of the proposal. That it makes God look like he's got a vindictive, cruel dark side versus going, no, if you propose and they say no, the proper mature response is to go, okay, and let them go their own way, right? Um, and so I think this, it's attempting to be more merciful or whatever, but I don't think it actually pans out in the end. The third option is for God to say, hey, marry me, or I'll lock you in the basement, right? And this one is kind of going, um, hey, marry me, uh, or I'll lock you in the basement until you learn to love me, right? It's kind of says, why can't, okay, if God doesn't just annihilate them, why can't he use hell to kind of purge people of sin and evil and sort of a, a, a universalism type thing where eventually God will use hell to draw people, get them to himself? And the problem, a couple of problems here, um, first off is I think it misunderstands the nature of the issue. It's, it's a way of kind of going, why can't God just redeem sin, redeem unrepentant sin? And, uh, and why can't God use hell to redeem sin? And the issue is that God has redeemed sin through Christ on the cross. God has taken it all upon himself, borne it in the vicarious humanity of Christ in order that we can be reconciled with him. The problem that gives rise to hell, it's not God's refusal to redeem, it's our refusal to be redeemed. It's our rejection of the Redeemer who has come to embrace us. Right? So that's one issue. Another is I think it misunderstands the nature of love. Like you can't coerce someone into loving you, at least not a true healthy love, right? Like they, you, they, you've heard stories probably of where people had been um, abducted or uh, kidnapped and they uh, can at times develop like a, an unhealthy kind of bonding with their captor over time. But most of us would look at that and go, yeah, but that's not a healthy love or affection, right? Like coercion doesn't give rise to pure love. It's beautiful and good. And so I don't think this is a more merciful option either for God to kind of try and use hell in order to draw people to himself. The fourth option, and the one that I think we see in the gospel, is God essentially saying, marry me or go your own way. And this is, in essence, at the heart of it's just the historic 
robust, uh, both the biblical story and the Christian tradition, that we see a God who has come in Christ to be in union with us, but a God who is secure enough in himself to respect our decision and the dignity of our, you know, uh, if we are to say, God, no, like I prefer independence to communion with you. I prefer autonomy to worship. And the scariest thing might be God giving us what we want. That's actually a road that leads to destruction, a life apart from our maker. So in conclusion, I think throughout all of this, we see the goodness of God. The story is driven by the goodness of God. Uh, It's because God is good that he is out to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of hell. It is because God is good that he establishes his kingdom and kicks unrepentant sin outside the city and the rebels who refuse to bend the knee. It is because God is good that he uh, protects his kingdom from anything that would seek to invade its flourishing by containing it outside. And it's because God is good that he respects the dignity of our decision to prefer life without him. The story is saturated by the goodness of God through and through. And the invitation for all of us, however, though, is to enter into union with this God. The gospel, the creator, again, has come in Christ and essentially taken on the weight of our sin and suffering and shame and says, come and be united with me. And I would suggest to you that being united with Jesus, saying yes to the marriage proposal, it's both the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. It's the easiest thing because it's free, right? It doesn't cost you anything. He's paid the price. He wants to be with us. There's nothing we gotta do to earn it. No hoops we gotta jump through or things we gotta go over to get it. God wants to be with us and he has come in Christ to make that happen. And yet, I'd say it's the hardest thing in the world because it costs us everything. It means trading our independence for communion, giving up being Lord of our own lives to actually bend the knee to Christ as king. It means we're not talking about like getting married to Joe Schmo here. Right? Like we're talking about the creator of the universe, the one who holds us together right now through his word and spirit in his very presence. We are held together and he invites us into union with him. We should feel the weight and the gravity of that invitation what it means to be bound in union with our maker. And so the invitation this morning just to bring it all home is again that we could take greater confidence in the goodness of God and allow that goodness to shape and inform our lives as his people, that we would bend the knee to his kingdom and have lives that are shaped and marked by the glory of his kingdom and the goodness of our king.